It is always weird to start these. I just want to get into the middle part where I'm flowing, where my mind is going, where I'm in a rhythm. But the start, the beginning, where I tell you it's episode 64, welcome, I'm Josh, beep, 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 beep. It's not easy. Gotta try to do it smoothly. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Let you know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about some of the things I'm really bad at. We're going to talk about this summer a little. And I'm going to end with a fun story from the world of wildlife. I think my heightened awareness of the animals around me is now the theme of my life. Even now, when I let my dog outside in the middle of the night to pee, I kind of want to see a raccoon. I don't know why. Like, I have it on my mind that it's just going to be there. And I kind of want to create a little bit of a relationship. Not a friendship, but just a game recognized game. Like, I see you, you see me. This used to be your land. Now I'm on your land. Let's be friends. Don't attack my dog. He's very old. God, how sad would that be? He's 13 now. That'd be way too sad if that's how it ended. Raccoon attack? So I think I need to befriend the animals around here. But at the end of this, at the end of this episode, I'm going to get to a really good story. One that you're going to think I made up, but no. It comes from a real credible source, not The Onion. By the way, don't you love when people repost things from The Onion on social media and they don't fucking know what The Onion is? They don't know. This happens. You've all seen it. Someone posts a fake story and you just go, oh boy, oh boy. The same people that get their news from Mad Magazine. These people, you know, these people. Actually, nobody reads Mad Magazine anymore. And some of you listening don't even know what that is, huh? All right, we reach an age, we all reach an age where we kind of identify what we're good at and what we're bad at. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we truly can understand what we're bad at. I mean, we know it and it's not changing. Like if you have bad handwriting right now, you're an adult, you're always going to have bad handwriting. And if right now you can't cook, you're shitty in the kitchen, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to saute, you don't know how to bake. You don't know how to make anything from scratch. You don't know what knives to use if you're going to mince, puree, chop. You're just bad at it. That's fine. You don't have a feel for it. If you're terrible at drawing, you're probably bad at drawing. Now, this is not what a lot of people want to hear. A lot of people want to hear, no, you can work on it. Growth mindset. Growth mindset. The idea that we limit ourselves with our own self-fulfilling prophecies. Like if I tell myself, I'm bad at math. I'm bad at math. I'm bad at math that I'm always going to be bad at math. But if I commit a lot of my mental energy to math, then all of a sudden I could see results. I'm torn on this one, but I'm more of the mindset that I'm just fucking bad at math. huh? No need to scream right there. I could just say, I'm just bad at math. Then you got to be honest with yourself about what you're good at. And you can't be too modest. You can't be too humble. Take pride in it. Have some confidence. Right now, think of something you're really good at. Maybe you're good at sewing. You just have a talent. Maybe you're good at fixing your own car. You could lift up the hood and you can identify every part and you're like, oh yeah, today I'm just going to fix that. Yeah, my rear axle seems busted, so I'm going to juggle the pistons around with the liquid ball bearings and uh, hook it into the auxiliary ramp and yeah, shouldn't need a nine bolt. Maybe you're good at baking pies. You always have been. Peach pies, pecan pies, cherry pies. That's your talent. Own it. Maybe you're good at something weird like... Giving yourself a haircut. Just turns out you're like the Zohan. You're like Vidal Sassoon. You're just good. Good at dressing. Good at doing your makeup. Good at learning new languages. I don't know. But you're just good at things. 
Hopefully it's a long list. And I believe the things that you're good at, you could add to that list throughout life. You could always discover, who knew I was good at this? Hey, that's terrific. Turns out I'm great at ping pong. But the things you're bad at, you probably have been bad at for a long time or perhaps your whole life. But the one thing I noticed that I'm bad at lately, I don't remember being so bad at it when I was a kid, and that is vacationing. I'm terrible at vacationing. No good, which is going to hurt my desire to even want to go on vacations. I know that seems weird, but I've realized what it is. Duration. I could go for a one-nighter. One-nighter anywhere. Even Paris. You know, if someone said you could just transport yourself to Paris, so don't worry about the travel time, spend a day and a night and come back the next day, I'd say that's ideal. Some people go, no, I want to spend a month in Paris and see it all. No, thanks. This is my flawed system. I feel like My physical approach to vacationing is immediate excitement. I want to soak it all up. I go to sleep. It's not my bed. It's not my pillow. It's not my room. I wake up and I go, I kind of would like to be back. I don't know what the hell has happened to me. It's very weird. And once I'm vacationing, like you wouldn't notice that I'm bad at it because I like to do all the activities. I like to eat all the food. I like to go see all the sights. But then there's something about getting closer to the departure day where I get to leave that's exciting. Some people get sad when the vacation ends. They yearn for more. They need more. But in the last, I'd say, three, four years, it's the opposite. I don't have a clue what has changed. Some of you listening can identify with this. Maybe it means you like your house, you like your life, you like your routine. Maybe it means you're too routine regimented, too routine oriented. You got to shrink yourself a little. Shrink yourself. Get out of your comfort zone. That's what it is. But what if your comfort zone is comfortable? No wonder so many people just stay on a narrow path throughout life. If you can actually find a comfort zone, whether that's physically, mentally, whatever it all entails, and someone all of a sudden tells you, you got to get on a plane and go elsewhere and see other things and feel differently. It's not always appealing. Like Ideally, my vacations are going to be Yosemite, maybe local beach trips, Avila Beach, Dillon Beach, Lake Tahoe. If friends are having weddings elsewhere, go to those. If there's a reason to see an Aztecs football game elsewhere, go to those. Always wanted to see New Orleans because I like to eat. Go back and tackle New York City. But this part of me that should be yearning to see Thailand or discover the ancient ruins of some area in South America or go see, I don't know, Moscow doesn't exist. That person is dead inside me. The voice that says, go explore the world has died. I know this for a fact because I went to Lake Tahoe for three days. Three days. Very nice. But by the end, I just feel groggy. It's like my eyes sting and unsleep well. Overindulge in everything. Can't wait to get back to my diet. And then it takes a few more days to get back in my rhythm. That's life. Some people could just travel, bounce, bounce, bounce around. City to city, city to city. These are the people that probably travel for work. Or they really love traveling for pleasure. These are those people. I envy them. I'm not them. I'm bad at it. Had to realize it. I really do. I'm not just saying that sarcastically. I envy the people that every year have a big trip planned and they look forward to it. They count down the days. And then when the trip is ending, they get sad. Nah. When I went to Israel, I'd say 70% of the people on this trip were extending their travels. I'm going to go through Greece. We're going to go see Egypt. And they all had their plans. They were so excited. And I was like, just get me to that Tel Aviv airport. I mean, the fastest cab you've got. I don't know why. It was a good trip. 
but get me back to something with a schedule. This is why I'm not an entrepreneur either. I don't mind having a boss. I don't mind having a very direct, organized schedule. I kind of need it, which is why summer break, I've said this before, it's too long. I know it's blasphemy, but I have the solution. Pay every teacher $10,000 more a year and then just give us July off. We'll work all of June, all of August. Just give us July off. What? What's that? Half July? Fine. You give us an extra 12K. I'll negotiate right now. I'll negotiate right now with the board. Pay us a little more. We'll work longer because there's something bad about summer break. Sure, it's wonderful. We get lazy. Maybe we get to travel. (gasps) Try to get in shape. Soak up the sunshine. Go to the beach. All the good things. But what other profession do you just stop doing? for a couple of months and expect to come back and be just as good. Ideal vacation, two weeks, three weeks, even four weeks, but a summer break, not even from a student standpoint. From a student standpoint, of course, the concern is that they're not going to retain a lot of the info, but from a teacher's standpoint, what other profession is like this where they just go, okay, you're doing well, you're doing well, and pause and get out of the rhythm. And then when you come back, I think most teachers feel a sense of anxiousness or almost like, wait, how, is it like riding a bike? What do we do again? We stand in front of the desks and we organize units. We give tests. Okay, okay. And then it makes sense again. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what I do for a living. But it's a long pause. You start to get in your head. What monumental changes do I need to make to my approach? Which I guess is good to reevaluate. But now, the whole model of the school schedule, it is so broken in the middle. I know this is the opposite of how most teachers say they feel. They like summer break, as do I. But it's just a little long. Just a little bit long. All right. Speaking of nutrition looking good and having some summertime hours to actually embrace fitness, get to the gym, find some running shoes, run, 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 swim, 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 jump, 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 P90X, I'm a TV. Well, I thought I was committing to a really nutritious diet, organic, and I'd be lying if I said I totally knew what organic meant. I kind of do, I think. No pesticides, no preservatives, blessed by a rabbi, one of those, but I care about the word organic. I need the word organic. I don't really know what it means. Yeah, probably not a lot of preservatives. Is that right? Fresh from the earth, from the ground. All right. But I thought my diet was going well for a couple of weeks, was going on runs, doing push-ups in my living room. Oh yeah, push-ups in my living room. Asking my wife to count out loud. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes. Flexing in the mirror. Am I 13? Nope. But then comes the Tahoe trip. Beach time? Fine. However, we went on the trip with my dad and he took a photo of my wife and I with our baby in the middle, each holding one of her hands from behind. Didn't know I was being photographed. So once again, this sounds cute, right? Me, baby in the middle, my wife, Lake Tahoe on the horizon beyond us. And then I see the photo. Holy shit. I look like the blob, a marshmallow with arms. I look like my skin was falling off of me, like I was melting with fat. Not even a double chin, just like I'm laying on my own neck pillow of fat. Like the worst angle, the worst angle you can imagine the opposite of how I was seeing myself. And I don't know. My wife says that I I have the opposite body image, like actual dysmorphia, where if I go three days without a workout, eating poorly, then I just see fatness in the mirror. And then if I go three days working out and eating well, all of a sudden I see Brad Pitt chiseled. So yeah, there's something psychologically off 
about this, but the photo my dad took, candid. I was like, we should delete this forever. Didn't. He sent it out, but that's another story. So there I am, looking chunky, chunky like Campbell's soup. And it was a wake-up call. Instead of getting mad, instead of getting disappointed, instead of getting frustrated, I got motivated, inspired. So it all begins right now. You're hearing the evolution right now. Episode 64. Let's call it the metamorphosis. Let's title this one. The big change. It's happening. So in June, I'm five foot eight. I was up to 185. What? You didn't ask? Yeah. Do you have a pen right now? Write that down. Five foot eight. Okay. With a good, good pair of shoes, five foot eight, you know, Nike Air Max, but come on, just write five foot eight. Are you writing anything? No. Okay. And then write in June, I was about 185. That is grande folks. That's a little too big. Got down to 177 in July. It's now August. I think I'm 176. I want to be 167. There it is. Circle it. 167 is now the goal. How do I get there? Well, as we age, it ain't easy. And guess what? It's so tough to eat well. So yeah, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about food because I just watched the documentary Fed Up. If you have Amazon Prime, watch it. It's this whole story of how our government completely fucked us all by destroying the farms throughout America, putting too much sugar in our diet, pushing cheese into our face, all the preservatives that invade our food, it's all going to kill us. All going to kill us. The amount of people with food-related diseases, diabetes, has just skyrocketed in the last 20 years. And I realized I'm passionate about this. You know, it's one of those documentaries where you start to feel something, you get angry, and you go, I want to be an activist. I want to be the change I'd like to see in the world. So it's hard. Every meal for the rest of my life is going to be hard to eat well. And some people disagree. They go, no, you just got to get your proteins. You got to get your greens. You got to get your fruits. You got to get your veggies. Go to the farmer's market. Nonsense. It's hard even when you think about seasoning it properly. Tuna, tuna salad, mayo, mayo? Well, fat-free mayo, right? No, that's what the documentary was about. Anything that's light or it says fat-free, they're still shoving a lot of chemicals into that to make you look like I did in that Lake Tahoe picture. All right, I look like the before picture in every diet. I look like the picture of the guy who's so committed to his fat-free sour cream, his fat-free mayo, his fat-free ranch dressing. Well, they're putting so much sugar in it, so much other terrible bullshit that you're not losing any weight. So believe it or not, getting full fat ingredients in your food and then portion control. All right, you want to write that down as well? Portion control could be the key. Even as I say this, you know I'm not going to follow through on it. Even as I say this, I'm going to drive by a Burger King in the next few days, slowly creep up on that drive through with my IHOP disguise. You remember the old IHOP commercials where people were too embarrassed to order the Rudy Tooty Fresh and Fruity, so they had those glasses with the big nose and the mustache? That's going to be me. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm going to need that at the Burger King drive through but I'm going to say, yeah, drop three Whoppers with cheese in a bag. I'm going to say it in a different voice. Drop three Whoppers with cheese in a bag. Why not just order in my voice? Why the disguise? I don't know. Why so many questions? But then I'm just going to sit in the parking lot. No, no, no. I'm going to drive into a forest area. I can see it now. I'm going to drive. What am I fucking talking about? Okay, uh, back to what I wanted to discuss. Actually, forget all the nutrition stuff. Forget it. Forget it. I'll just hover around 180 for the rest of my life. But at least I'm going to bottom out and then get inspired. How do you bottom out? You go on vacation where you just eat, 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 and eat, 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 and you drink, 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 and drink, and then take a photo of yourself and barf. Okay, here's something beautiful. Here's something beautiful, all right? Maybe maybe pause it here, get some fresh air, and come back. This is a good 
intermission for the podcast. Episode 64. It got a little hot in here. Or is it just me? I need to open a window. I'm drinking hot coffee on a hot day. How dumb. Hot coffee on a hot day. How dumb. That's the title of this podcast. All right. Here's something kind of amazing, I guess. But when I met my wife, she explains her family. I explained my family. And all families throughout the world are different. And a lot of us don't even know how we're related to certain people. He goes, is that my second cousin? How many times removed? Who knows? I think that's an uncle. Or is that a former uncle, a step-uncle, ex-uncle? I don't know. They were around a lot. Was I even related to this person? When you're a kid, you have like vague memories of people who are around a lot. You just assume it's probably a cousin, right? No? A creepy neighbor? Huh? Who? But my wife's family is insanely difficult to understand. Yes, two siblings. I get that. Okay, and two parents, I get that. But then when she describes her mom's side of the family, you start to go, wait, was it her sister? Oh, half sister? It was cousin? Uncle? Who? And nothing makes sense anymore. Like, I can't follow the family tree on my wife's side. I don't know why. I just can't. I know the names, but I just don't know the actual relation. So I digress. My wife is related to one of the most famous, gifted, legendary trumpet players in the world of jazz, in the history of the world of jazz. His name is Ron Miles. I'm so tempted to spell that, but there's no way you could misspell that. R-O-N-M-I-L-E-S. You're going to Google this, just as I did. Through marriage, of course. He's African-American, so of course, through marriage. And I don't have to tell you the circuitous route of how they're related, but let's just say my wife's cousin through marriage is Ron Miles. And I like jazz. So when I Googled him, I realized, holy shit, we're talking about like one of the biggest names in jazz today. So I'd follow his tour and see if he was coming to the Bay Area anytime for years. I've known my wife since 2013. So I've known the name Ron Miles since 2013. Have never seen him. There have been opportunities. You know, he's come close, but we just haven't pulled the trigger. I'm buying the tickets until a couple of weeks ago. Here we go. So Josh Redman If you're a jazz fan, you know the name. Great saxophone player, puts together a band called Still Dreaming. They schedule a one-nighter at the Bing Concert Hall on the campus of Stanford, which is stunningly beautiful. So we go out there. We go out there to the farm. And before I even get to the show, right when we exit in the Menlo Park area, there's people taking pictures in front of the Facebook headquarters, the Facebook building. People taking pictures, like not just a few, but I'd say like 12 to 14 people looking real touristy right in front of the sign, you know, the thumbs up emoji, Facebook sign. And I was like, okay, you know, like right now it seems stupid, but I guess, like I said, the biggest tech revolution we've ever seen is right here in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. So I guess, you know, people come from all around and they want to see what's going on. The answer is nothing. It's just office buildings, but because it has changed the world, all these apps, are happening in the same place. I made the comparison. It's going to be similarly studied to the way we study the Renaissance in Florence, Italy, this area, except for the fact that when you go to Florence, it's beautiful art. And when you go to Silicon Valley or Menlo Park, it's just people taking pictures in front of a building that says Facebook. So that was happening when we exited. And then like an idiot, I made reservations at Buca de Peppo. You ever been to this place? It shouldn't exist. Let's just burn them all to the ground. No, not with people in them. No, not with people in them, but all the Buca de Peppos, these Italian family dining restaurants, let's burn them all to the ground. Awful, awful. This is my bad. We walk in. This is all before the Ron Miles show, and if you want to talk jazz, I'm going to get there in a moment, so hang on, hang on. I don't really know what the theme is. I thought I did. I've been to Buca de Peppo once 25 years ago with my uncles, and I think it was fun, 
So now here I am, 37 years old, and I told my wife, I got a nice night blend. Okay, so you walk in through the kitchen. They think that's cool, like mob style, but it's not because everyone in the kitchen's working, and they don't make way for you. You just feel like you're in the way. The hostess at the hostess stand was the most miserable person I had ever met. Actually, the second most miserable person I had ever met because she led us to our table, and that is where he was. The most miserable person of all time was our waiter. Now, the AC was blaring down on my wife. Fradonk. That's the sound effect for AC. Fradonk. Right on her. So we were like, can we change tables? And, oh, what? There were 12 tables empty around us. And he looked around and goes, that might take like 10, 15 minutes. Why? All we have to do is get up, grab menus, and sit elsewhere. And, of course, it didn't. It took about six seconds. He had to wipe down a table. This guy, holy shit. I mean, he was a real piece of work. So we sit down at our new table, right? at Buca de Peppo and realized this is not where two people should go to dinner. Everything is for three or more. Do you know how the menu works? So we sit down. I was like, all right, what do you have in the old gin department? He didn't know. He had to keep running to the bartender. I said, what about beers? You got a list about 20 beers. He said, yeah, no. Uh, we got one. It's called Heineken on tap. What? The whole menu has like 20 beers on tap. He comes back and he says, we have one. And it's not exactly cold or carbonated. Can I interest you in that? And I'm like, where can we exit? Do you exit the place that already looks like the exit? So instead, we order the world's worst lasagna and the world's worst stuffed chicken. Get through it. And I realize the waiter's so soft-spoken and so uninformed about the menu, never smiles, that he always stands 10 feet away from the table. And I never understood what he was saying. He was one of these guys. Hey, guys, what's going to go? going to go with the cheese? Yeah, we'll have some... Parmesan, are you offering Parmesan with a salad and you know, water? And then we're going to go with a meal. I was like, come closer, you sick bastard. No, that's what was in my head. And my wife could tell that, you know, rage is boiling up within me. And she goes, just calm down. We're having a nice night. We're dressed up. Got the babysitter, which is my mom. We drove an hour and a half to Stanford. We're about to see jazz with fancy people. Okay. We're about to see Ron Miles play the trumpet. But instead, the waiter at Buga de Peppo was creating rage to boil up. And she said, just calm down and yeah, go ahead and calm down. All right. So I calmed down with my flat, warm Heineken. Paid the bill, which was about 520 bucks. Hey, thanks, Buga de Peppo, for inflation. My wife did make the point, though. It had the look of a restaurant that was closing down the next day. And they just told every employee. They just revealed the big information hey we're closing out tomorrow and keep working tonight and that's when we come in hey everybody it's time for a date night no all right so finally we drive onto the farm onto the stanford 70 teslas in the parking lot that's irrelevant ushers screaming screaming out of the door show's gonna start i've never seen ushers rush people to their seats like this is this typical for jazz i don't know but then a guy comes and introduces them. The band comes out, and it's the type of jazz. Let me just get to this for a sec. The band comes out. It's the type of jazz that makes you realize, if you're me, or makes me realize, I don't know jazz. I thought I was a jazz fan. But the meandering, aimless direction of all the songs, and it was really nice still, but it's not like any melody or tune. So when Ron Miles, this, he plays the cornet. He's a cornetist, which is in the trumpet community. It's in the trumpet family. Google it. And he plays at such a high level because I know that because I Googled him. But on my ears, on my amateur ears, I don't get it. However, the drummer was a legend. I mean, this guy was out of this world talented. And Josh Redman on the saxophone was very good. But I didn't get how it worked. They'd play like these 15-minute songs. And I go, is this all improv? 
Are they reading music? Do they have an agreement to look at each other? Like, you know, a basketball team on a fast break. Maybe it's not an official play that they've practiced, but they've played together for so long that it looks good to me. It was fun, but it was almost confusing because the jazz I grew up listening to, when my dad left the house, he left a lot of things in the house, including jazz CDs, jazz records, jazz tapes. And I remember Oscar Peterson, Bill Evans, some Teddy Wilson, you know, piano jazz. But then you get into the horns, the Coltrane's, the Miles Davis. I know nothing about that. Nothing. So this was unlike any music I've ever heard. People who like trumpet jazz, horn jazz, they must understand it on a deeper level. And I was happy to clap, but there's no way to tap your foot. There's no way to nod your head because there's no real beat. There's no real nothing. It's like just watching interpretive dance. You know, you could watch a dancer. You know, just watch like a hip-hop dancer and you're like, okay, I've seen these moves. Ooh, get it, get it, get it, get it. And then you just watch someone, you know, in the crowd at a Grateful Dead show. It's just interpretive dance, just flailing. Flailing sounds negative because obviously it's not flailing, the type of jazz I saw. But it was as impressive as it was confusing. I was watching it. I was like trying to be in the concert, but also observing it like I was an alien, like I was a mork, just set down from Orc, is that where Mork was from? From Orc? Sent down to Earth to watch music for the first time. And if this was my first taste of music, I don't think I would have liked it. I like Ron. Didn't get a chance to meet him, but I liked watching him. I liked watching the faces of the musicians, you know, because they were just feeling the music. Holy shit. But the crowd was as dead as any group of people ever collected in one venue. For any event, funerals, you name it, the ballet, the opera, I've never seen a crowd this dead. It looked like a painting of heads, just people whose expressions didn't change. No one's really clapping. No one's dancing, of course. And I couldn't understand what the fuck was going on. But beautiful venue. I was so tempted to lie and act like I really understood you know, the beauty of the music. Oh, yes, I understand why Josh Redman is so gifted. No, I don't. I don't. It's just one of those things where I needed to do prep, prior prep. Most music, you know, chords, scales, notes that I've heard. This all over the map. But there's just something classy about a night of jazz. There is. I'm going to say yes anytime through the rest of my life. If someone invites me to jazz or if I see it in the newspaper or locally, I just want to go. It's fun. It's got soul. That and stand-up, which I finally did this summer, saw Theo Vaughn. Uh, paid extra for the meet and greet. Worth it. So worth it. You think the meet and greet when you pay extra for a stand-up comedian is just going to be a long line of people who get to shake his hand and take a picture? No, they took us into his dressing room. Took us into his dressing room where he looked lonely and like really happy to see us. He looked like he didn't have confidence. He just killed. Had a big set at Cobbs. He was there all weekend selling out shows. And if you don't know Theo Vaughn, Southern comic, used to be on Road Rules. I've talked about him. Has a good podcast. T-H-E-O-V-O-N, because I needed to spell it for you. When we came in, he was like really present, attentive, focused. He had his bodyguard or assistant take a photo. And then he grabbed my phone and just said, let me take a selfie of all of us. It was cool as hell. It's just like you know, one of those nights that makes your summer. You just go, wow. That's why I like comics, because they appreciate The good comics do appreciate their fans. And that's what he exuded. True gratitude. He also does a show, like he's a great storyteller, but I also noticed like when there were pockets of commotion, he would just nicely say, hey, be quiet. Like people paid money to see my show, so shh, 
I loved it. The worst thing is a comedy club that can't control the hecklers or just the drunkards. He was good. He's like, we don't need to make an issue. Just hey, lady with the bad laugh. Shh. Oh, hey, hey, guys over there who are making your own comments. Shut up. And I was like, oh, this guy is a pro. He's a total pro. He may come off like a country bumpkin, but his act is polished. Very smart. And like I said, I think he's the next big thing in comedy. So write it down. T-H-E. Well, I already spelled it. All right, here we go. Here's how I'm going to end it. Or there we go. Just going to read you an article. Of all the bad news, sad news, disturbing news you've consumed, I'm just going to read you an article and in the end tell you this really happened. I want you to picture it as I read it. Of all the news sites I go to, I don't know how I truly came across this article, but I started to picture it in my head and it made me happy. It was so weird. You're like, this is real life. But without footage, you know, everything's caught on tape today. This is not caught on tape. I'm just going to read this. You picture it. Then I'll say goodbye. Then episode 64 is over. Just like that. Bam. All right. Dateline Hoopa, California. I've lived in California my whole life. Never heard of Hoopa. It's in Humboldt County. A patrol car was struck by a falling bear. In Northern California. What? Uh, I'm sorry, what'd you say? A patrol car, like a cop car, was struck by a falling bear? Oh, yeah. Authorities said the patrol car, the sheriff's deputy, was answering a report of a drug overdose in the community of Orleans when the bear fell or jumped right onto the car from a very steep embankment. I'm not making this up. It says the bear fell or jumped onto the car. A bear. Could you imagine a bear choosing to jump onto a car and you're in the car? Can you? Of course not, is the answer to that. The bear smashed the hood in the windshield. The patrol car hit an embankment, rolled onto its side, rolled down, and burst into flames. The deputy managed to escape without injury. The fire was contained. The bear fled the scene. None of that is made up. That's the actual report. None of it is caught on tape either. But there's a photo of the car completely incinerated in flames. I need to meet the sheriff. I do. I need to talk to him. He saw a bear slam down onto the windshield. And then the car rolls, catches fire, and you have to get out of your own car. At that point, it's not real life. Where's the comedy, right? I mean, look, it's not sad. No one got hurt. No one died. I think the bear's okay. The bear's probably telling his friends the story. So then, right, hey, listen up. So I see the car, right? Everyone's crowded around this one bear holding court. And I said, fuck it. I cannonballed right on this bastard. You did what? He's like, clean out your ears. I've been telling the story all day. I cannonballed onto a patrol car. From that standpoint, it's insane, right? That a bear just fell a bunch of feet onto a car. But the real crazy part is the sheriff. And I'm curious, did he continue his shift? Did he go ahead, take care of the drug overdose in the local town? Did anyone? That's a follow-up story. Did anyone take care of it? Or did the sheriff just quit and go, yeah, I can't do this job anymore. There's one too many falling bears in town. And my final thought of the day is the bear is the one wild animal that you wish was domesticated, right? Of all animals, how cool would it be if you could just own one? Slowly moving through your kitchen, you just feed it by hand, some goldfish or Chex Mix. You're Lester. Hey, Lester. Lester's up. Lester's up. He has his cage. He doesn't even need a cage. He's so docile. Sometimes he gets into bed with you. Picture this, really. If there's any animal out there that you should never sleep with in your own bed, it's probably, you know, a bear is high on the list of ones you shouldn't. What if it was just like a dog or a cat? Just bears were in that category, domesticated like that. It's 
be amazing. Go to YouTube right now. Just type in big bear or black bear, grizzly bear, any bear. Be amazing to pet one. Kind of put your face, nestle your face, my fat face up to a bear's fat face, and we just go. That'd be the best moment of your life. But if you ever attempted that, you'd have no face anymore. You'd be mauled. That's how we're ending this son of a bitch. A lot of swearing today. I don't know why. All right. I feel like I'm sweating. I just showered. I need to shower again because hot coffee on a hot day. How dumb. All right. Episode 64. It's now in the books. I'll talk to you soon.